I'm Stacy Tamaki, and this is The Origami Show. Are you paper curious? If you're always scanning the horizon for origami-centric people, paper shops, events, stories, and ideas, you'll find them right here. The mission of this podcast is to encourage and support your paper-folding creativity. Welcome to The Origami Show. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked is, how did I turn my hobby of origami into a career? On today's episode, I'm going to take a brief but deep dive into not only how I created Tinygami, but will share insights all the way back to the first company I started when I decided it was worth it to pursue turning my creativity into an occupation. Since then, I've gone from designing bridal veils and headpieces to websites and now miniature origami and podcasting. I know I'm not the only person who's been told you should sell whatever it is you make. The information I'm sharing can be applied to turning any hobby into a side business or full-time career. These are business basics that are applicable beyond the scope of origami. The points I'll be covering deal with fundamental questions I think every potential entrepreneur should ask themselves, ranging from Should I sell my work? How do I choose my company's name? What is branding? How do I decide what my pricing should be? I'll also cover marketing, copyright, and revenue streams. If you've ever considered becoming an entrepreneur, stay tuned because today's episode is overflowing with information that may be valuable to you, a family member, or a friend. After the fundamentals, I'll share how you can enter to win a copy of the Fold Space Origami Convention model diagrams book that we talked about in last week's interview with Sarah Williams from Fold Space Studio. This episode is brought to you by the Origami Show sponsor, Ito Company, your brand for origami and traditional Japanese paper products, available at art supply and craft retail shops nationwide and online. With over 20 years of experience, Ito Company offers the largest selection of Japanese origami papers in the United States. So should you sell your work? To me, this is the first and most important question to ask yourself about any hobby you're considering evolving into a full-time business. Part of what makes a hobby enjoyable is that you do what you want, when you want, with who you want, all on your own terms. In any business, there are many aspects that will take time away from doing the part you love. I'll go over those later when I talk about pricing, but even if you can afford to pay people to do things like maintain your online presence, your website, social media accounts, or pack and ship orders, you'll still be the person in charge of managing both people and quality control of what everyone you've hired is doing for you. So distractions from your creative process are inescapable. Add to that, you'll also have to dedicate time and energy to communicating with clients and vendors. Most will be wonderful. A few may be challenging to please, and some may only be there to give you a hard time. In all cases, you're the one who will most likely have to interact with them. Clearly, this isn't an impossible task. There are plenty of successful small businesses. But it can diminish the joy in your creative process if you don't like to deal with deadlines and expectations. Burnout is real. When I went to college, I majored in advertising art. 
the way some of my classes went were so just soul sucking. For instance, one instructor I felt would berate me during the assignment process, telling me I couldn't use mediums the way I was using them. Not that I wasn't allowed to, but that it wasn't possible to. So they would give me a hard time during the assignment process, then give me an A when I completed the assignment. I thought to myself, if this is what working in commercial art is going to be like, I wanted no part of it. So don't do what I did. But I dropped out three months before I was supposed to graduate and didn't paint for years after quitting college because the whole experience had literally burned out my passion to create. So there's that to consider. Whatever you do, I strongly urge you, do not invest thousands of dollars into any idea without doing market research. Is there a demand for your product or service? And is there an opportunity in your local market or online? I had people asking me for products they could buy for two years before I launched TinyGami. I built the company up slowly and continue to do so. I didn't take out a business loan, go into debt, or spend tens of thousands of dollars on a hunch. I mean, if you have thousands of dollars burning a hole in your pocket and can afford to lose it, no harm if things don't work out. But for most of us, careful consideration is an essential element that shouldn't be overlooked. If you can set boundaries, communicate with others, creating realistic expectations that are within your comfort zone, manage your time and either enjoy your creative process on the job or set time aside to continue pursuing your passion as your hobby too, I think it's perfectly doable. And it's the balance I've created for myself with Tiny Gami. It begins with your company name. Is it memorable? Will someone be able to recall it after hearing it once or twice? What makes a name easy to remember? To a certain degree, uniqueness. You don't want something so generic it can be mistaken for a handful of other similar names. But at the same time, don't use obscure words that will be hard for people to remember because they're so unfamiliar with them. Is it difficult to pronounce? Back when I worked in the San Francisco Bay Area wedding industry as a couture bridal accessory designer, I met an event coordinator named Patricia Bruneau. Patricia had given her company a beautiful French name. The challenge was anyone unfamiliar with the French language would have seen it and most likely would have read and pronounced it as La Affaire du Temps. But its French pronunciation is more along the lines of La Affaire du Temps. I remember when she was a guest speaker at a networking event, she commented on it that it was difficult for people to remember, spell, and pronounce. But by the time she realized all of this, she had already launched her company, so she kept the name. Shorter is better, says the woman who just named this podcast three words long, but they're easy to remember words because they're so descriptive of what the show is about. Now imagine a potential client has heard about you from someone. Will they be able to remember and spell your name to find your website and social media accounts? In doing things like creating a novel name by adding in an extra letter or changing the common spelling of a word can create a significant amount of confusion that becomes a barrier to people finding you. The second fundamental area is branding. Branding is making your company visually recognizable. Think of things like the Nike swoosh or McDonald's golden arches 
You don't need to see the company name to recognize which companies they represent. Your logo can be a letter mark, which would be like a monogram or a single letter, a word mark, your company name in a specific, usually fancier or designer font, or a graphic design, which would be a shape. Or it could be a combination of them. No matter which you use, the goal is for it to become a symbol that will be instantly recognizable to your customers and the public as representing your company. Signature colors can also help, like Tiffany Blue. Many people can recognize a Tiffany and Company Blue box, even if we've never purchased anything from Tiffany. Years ago, when I worked in the bridal industry, periwinkle was my company's signature color. I painted my showroom walls and display cases, the same color I put on my business cards. And to this day, literally have people tell me whenever they see the color, they think of me. I think that's a successful branding of a color. The font you choose is also important. For me, it's so tempting to use a beautiful font that would become a word mark for my company. The unfortunate consequence of using what you like best means you may overlook, is it readable? This is so important. Script fonts and some designer fonts are beautiful, but they can also be very difficult to read when printed small enough to fit on a business card. So is it scalable? Will it look as good on a large sign as it does on a business card or price tag? This is my non-professional typographic opinion, but fonts with lots of thin lines or curves and curls are often the most difficult to read when it comes to using them in branding. URLs matter when choosing a name because for me, being able to obtain the .com internet address is a priority. It makes it hard when someone else has beat you to your company name and you're the one who has to add in the hyphen or some sort of abbreviation at the end of your name to be found online. If someone else has already registered your company name's URL, your customers are most likely going to end up on their website instead of yours. It can be very expensive to purchase your name from a current owner if they're even willing to sell it. So when starting a new business or venture, I've always defaulted to not so simply taking the time and finding a URL that's available which can take a lot of brainstorming, plugging name ideas into a domain registry company's search field to see if the name I want is available or already taken. Next is the big one, pricing. I think this is the most challenging thing for most small business owners. If you're pursuing origami as a hobby business, meaning it's something you do without the intention of turning a profit, then pricing isn't as important if you can afford to make what you want and not need to sell it at a price that covers your overhead and costs. But if you're pursuing origami as a full-time business and professional career, then pricing is very important. When people look at the price of an individual model I sell, they see labor was involved, but some really only see it as a single sheet of paper. And they question, why does this cost X amount? If they ask me directly, I never get offended. I have no problem with explaining to them that yes, it's a piece of paper and the time it took to fold it. But the price also includes the experience of my learning to fold the design and my ability to now make it beautifully. 
Additionally, there are the costs of running my business that are factored into my prices. I give them examples of what those investments are. I wrote a little list for you. There's the cost of education, buying books, taking classes or workshops to improve on what I do. Events, things like conferences and convention registration fees, registration fees also for pop-up markets or art and craft fairs if I'm selling my products. There's gas, possibly airline travel fees, hotel bills. All of these things are expenses that I have to make sure are covered in the price for what I sell my products for. Equipment like my computer and office equipment for my website and the Etsy shop. I do photography for my tutorials. I do videography on YouTube. I now am purchasing audio equipment for doing the podcast, um, doing live streaming when I teach classes. There's my day-to-day expenses. If I am going to purchase supplies or attending a business-related meeting, there's my time for those the gas it takes to drive somewhere. There are two kinds of time I charge for. One is creative labor, meaning my production time, and one is travel time, which I charge a lower amount for. But sometimes when I am hired to teach a class before the pandemic, I might have to drive somewhere and the drive will be two hours each direction. So I have to make sure that time is covered. I pay for internet access, my domain name registration fees, my web hosting, and sometimes technical support. I have legal fees like filing for my LLC or having business contracts looked over or drawn up. I pay for marketing materials like my business cards, supplies, the origami paper itself, paints, inks, all those kinds of things, standard office supplies, packaging for my products, permits. There's an annual fee for my LLC. You could have an annual business license. There's a fee when you file for your fictitious name statement, which is your business name. If you don't work from home, when I had my shop, I was paying for my rent, insurance, electricity, a business phone line, which now people probably just use their cell phone, but it all adds up. The most challenging part is determining what your hourly rate needs to be to cover everything I just mentioned. It may take a while to figure out, but it's something you can make a rough estimate of early on, as long as you're forecasting what all of your expenses are going to be. How do I do it? So I worked out the number. How much do I need to make a month to cover those expenses? And then I created an hourly rate based on 40 hours of work a week. When I fold origami models, I basically have a per minute charge. Some people, they may be fine charging $15 an hour. Somebody else may want to charge $150 or $450 an hour. It all depends on what your own expenses are and what your needs are. I can tell you, I've never known anyone who charged too much. It's more likely that just starting out, people will undercharge. And you know this is true when customers tell you all of the time you should raise your prices. I used to make hand-sewn bridal veils and charge $90 for a cathedral-length, like floor-length veil. When I tired of making them, I decided I didn't want to stop offering them because I knew people would continue to ask for them. 
So I raised the price to $300, assuming fewer people would order them and I'd have to make less of them. And guess what? That year, I sold more than I had the year before. I was shocked. It turned out when I was being paid for all of the time it took to iron, cut, hand sew, and iron the veil again, I didn't mind making them as much. I learned that my resentment at making these veils was coming directly from the fact that I wasn't charging enough for them, even though my customers had told me to charge more for years. I think a lot of people feel like if they charge their labor as whatever their state's minimum wage is, they feel like that's enough. But when you're the business, not an employee, an hourly rate of minimum wage means you're earning less than minimum wage because all of your expenses and overhead aren't being taken into account. When it comes to selling, if you're not opening your own shop, there's a few different ways to sell. One is the way I've been doing it through Etsy and just retailing the products myself, but you can also have wholesale or consignment accounts. The wholesale and consignment are whole other considerations in pricing. Because in both instances, the shop you're selling to is most likely going to expect that you will sell your products to them at 50% of what your retail price is. So just when you feel like, okay, I figured out my price, how much I need to sell everything for, then you decide to do some wholesale or consignment work. And then you're only going to make half as much. So there can be this balance of, well, if I sell this much retail and this much wholesale, I'm still going to be able to hit my number of how much profit I need to make to cover my expenses. But if you're only selling wholesale or consignment, then your price is going to have to be higher. The problem is you can't charge one price and expect a store to buy your product at that price and then double that price to make their own profit, they are always going to want you to lower your price. Some may be satisfied if consigning with, say, a 70%, 30% split, where you get to make a little bit more than 50%, but on average, it's usually 50%. If you feel like your product prices are too high, then the question becomes, can this be a viable business? I think almost anything can be, but it may take a lot of creative thinking, figuring out best practices to reduce production time or constantly doing more research to source your materials at lower prices to keep your prices affordable to your customers. For me, it also meant relocating. I literally moved to another part of the country with a lower cost of living. Because had I stayed in Silicon Valley, there was no way I could have pursued my art as a financially sustainable career. Now, you can do everything I've mentioned, but if you aren't able or willing to also market your company and products, your business will build slowly, if at all, because marketing is essential. There are a lucky few people who, like a rock star, will break out because they have the right product at the right time and luck smiles upon them, giving them a big break or a viral video that most of us will never experience. Most people dedicate months and years to build a business into a successful one. 
And while marketing is definitely work for most of us, it's really like another job on top of running your company. It's also a lot easier now than it used to be, mostly because of social media. Instagram is the one platform I've dedicated myself to posting on an almost daily basis since 2014, because I don't have the time or energy to equally balance myself all across the different social media platforms. So I chose the one that I thought was going to work the best for me. I can honestly say almost every great thing that's happened to my company is because I'm on Instagram and people with opportunities have found me there and I've run with them. There's also advertising where you can pay. People are using online ads now, especially say on Facebook. They're affordable and really nice because they allow you to hone in and target your ad on exactly the people who you think are going to be your best customers. Word of mouth from others has always been one of the best ways you can market your company. But don't think that only means asking people to leave you a five-star review online. To me, it means making a product and offering customer service that's so outstanding, people go out of their way to tell others about you. In my opinion, this is the best form of marketing and one that precious few companies value anymore, which is evidenced by the disappointing and at times even alarming levels of decline in customer service we receive from companies we do business with. We see it on social media, right? All the time, people complaining about the terrible way a company they just gave money to is treating them. Interviews and publicity are almost as valuable as word of mouth testimonials because if a news organization found you interesting and credible enough to feature you, it creates trust in the reader's perception of your company because you've been pre-vetted. In my experience, many small business owners shy away from publicity because they don't want to be on camera or have to be interviewed. Well, I can certainly relate to their hesitation and discomfort. When you're a business owner, I found it's always best to take the opportunities when they're a good fit, even if it means feeling uncomfortable. I white knuckled my way through my first television opportunity years ago and learned it was the right thing to do for my company. So I would force myself. Eventually, I took public speaking workshops to get over my ambivalence so that I could be my own best spokesperson. Then there's another kind of word of mouth. And it's the word of mouth from you. It took a few years for me to start wearing my own tiny gummy necklaces out in public. Then it took a couple more to force myself to admit I made them. For instance, when I'm out in public and someone would say, oh, I love your necklace. I would always reply with a simple, thank you. Finally, I realized I was holding my own company back and began forcing myself to uncomfortably add at the end, I made it, which was just, ugh. I still squirm with discomfort when I say it, but it almost always leads to the other person asking for my business card and asking if I'm on Instagram because they want to follow me there. There's also your revenue stream. Ask yourself, is there only one? Or can you have multiple streams? Like the potential for publicity, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, are there other related income opportunities that may be outside of your comfort zone, but they could be what helps you create enough profit to pull off turning your hobby into a business? For me, there's my products, 
both fine art and what I call the gift line on Etsy, teaching and instruction now online, but before in person as well, and probably someday in the future, I'll be teaching live again. For teaching online, there was the learning curve of learning to teach on Zoom and live stream, but I got the hang of it. I've co-authored two origami diagram books. I've been hired as an entertainer at cocktail parties and corporate events where I do demonstration folding, making tiny gummies, and then give them to the party guests as gifts. I've also been hired as a public speaker. The last thing I want to talk about with origami specifically is copyright. A lot of people are not aware that copyright applies to origami models. It's one of the reasons why I've mostly focused on using only traditional models because there is no copyright protection on them. Copyright usually lasts for 70 years. Every model that's been designed within the past 70 years is copyright protected. This means for you to legally be able to make and sell that model, you have to have one of two things. You have to have permission from the person who created the design or their estate if they've passed away, or you need to pay for a license to be able to use their design for commercial purposes. Some people aren't even aware that this applies. Others know it applies, but they kind of try to get around it. And I've had both success and failures reaching out to other designers and asking if I could purchase a license from them. But being told no is not an excuse for me to go ahead and use somebody else's design anyway. There's legal implications, but for me at least, there's also moral implications of I'm not going to take something that doesn't belong to me and profit from it. It's also one of the reasons why I became motivated to start creating my own designs because then copyright's not an issue because I own the copyright. Something to consider though, if you are planning on making and selling origami models that you can't just make and sell any pattern you find online or in a book. You can make them for yourself or to give us gifts, but selling them is a different matter. And in the future, I'd like to do an entire podcast episode specifically about copyright issues, because there's a lot of depth there that I can't cover talking about it for two minutes in today's episode. So hopefully I'll be able to bring that to you at a future date. So my approach with Tiny Gami and now the Origami Show is to do whatever I can as professionally as possible including the things that make me feel uncomfortable. That discomfort, confronting and overcoming it, that's me becoming a more evolved version of myself, both professionally and personally. It's taken a lot of tenacity and commitment to get to this point because being self-employed is a lot more work than I suspect most people realize. Those of you who have ever run your own small business know exactly what I mean. You'll most likely work more hours than when you work for someone else, but the freedom of working with people you truly enjoy being around, setting your own standards, and carving out your own space in the universe where you get to share your creativity and earn a living is, in my experience, worth the effort and the challenges. So what is going on 
in the world of origami this week. It's a contest update. Last week, I decided to sponsor a book giveaway for a copy of the Foldspace Origami Convention Model Diagrams book. It's going to be a random drawing using a random number generator online. To win, here's what you need to know. You can enter on the Tiny Gami or the Origami Show Instagram pages where I'll create a contest post or enter on the tinygami.com website where I will create an entry form right on the homepage. In all three locations, feel free to leave a comment if you'd like to. You can make a show suggestion or tell me a podcast platform I may still need to have the show added to. Comments are not required. Other than I'd like you to leave me one or two words just in case you are the winner. And that is, please leave in your comment if you would prefer a printed copy or an electronic ebook copy of the book. So you can say as little as that print or ebook. I'm asking people to enter only once. And on the website, I'm also going to need to have you leave me an email address so I can contact you if you're the lucky winner. I promise it will not be harvested, shared, or sold because I don't even have a newsletter to need it for, nor do I have the desire to collect it and spam you later. Once the winner is chosen, I will delete all of the emails that I received for the contest. You can view photos of each of the models from the book in last week's episode show notes on Patreon. To wrap up this episode, my hope is you'll always find insights and information that will help you to explore new possibilities in your own creative life. I'm not a business expert, but I have been self-employed since 1997, which on some level, I think does qualify me to share information, much that I learned the hard way that might be helpful to you if you're considering starting an origami-based business of your own. The ways I learned other than trial and error were by reading a lot of entrepreneurial books. And I'll share some of my favorites in the show notes on Patreon. I also used SCORE years ago. SCORE is the service core of retired executives. They volunteer their time. And the executives that I worked with really changed the way I looked at being a small business owner, particularly what my time should be worth. You can consult with them about creating a new business or a business plan, or go to them when you have a specific question to grow your established business. They offer free services nationwide. It used to be in-person and online. I suspect now it'll be only online, but I'll also include a link to them in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you'll join me again next week. And a big thanks to the Origami Show's sponsor, Ito Company. If your local art supply or crafting supply store doesn't carry origami paper, ask them to carry Ito. They can visit ito.com online to learn more. And I'm not just saying that because Ito is the show's sponsor. They've been a trusted brand to me for well over two decades. From the Tiny Gummy Studio in Greenville, Michigan, this is Stacy Tamaki.